State of the Game is part of the Talk and Golf Podcast Network, proudly supported by the Golf Society. Thegolfsociety.com.au are retailers of the best brands in golf apparel, footwear, and accessories, including Ralph Lauren, Peter Miller, Travis Matthew, and Jay Lindeberg. Special offers apply for Talk and Golf listeners. Visit thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash Talk and Golf to claim your discount today. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrews, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Our second season is dedicated to some of the greatest golf course architects in the history of the game of golf. And today's subject is one of the very few who almost everyone agrees belongs on the Mount Rushmore of golf course architects. A surgeon by trade, an expert in military camouflage by chance, and then one of the greatest golf course architects in the history of the game, Dr. Alistair McKenzie left his mark in England, Australia, New Zealand, South America, and North America. He gave us private masterpieces like Augusta National, Cypress Point, and Royal Melbourne. And he gave us public retreats, like Pasia Tempo and Sharp Park. When the golf itch took him, he lost himself in the game and left us with some of the most beautiful brushstrokes our topographical canvases had ever seen. He was the epitome of what it meant to be a golf course designer. He was truly an artist who believed that the game could be enjoyed by all. Today, we are joined by Sean Tully, or Tully as I refer to him on our show today. Tully is the director of grounds at Dr. Alistair McKenzie's first American golf course design, the Meadow Club. Tully is also one of a few men who have devoted countless hours, days, months, and years of their time to the McKenzie Chronology, which is a free online chronicle of the life of Alistair McKenzie. Tully is a writer for Golfdom and has a seat on the Architecture and Archive Committee for the USGA. Their purpose is to aid golf clubs with their history, in particular, their architectural history. When he isn't spending time on preserving McKinsey's first American design, he is thinking his way through his future book on the history of golf in the Bay Area. Last but not least, Tully is the proud father of three beautiful girls. Tully, thank you so much for joining us on the Talking Golf History Podcast. Thanks, Connor. You have a special connection to Alistair McKenzie. Uh, beyond preserving his history, you help preserve one of his works of art. Can you share with everyone what you do at the Meadow Club? Yes, Connor. Um, I've been here at Meadow Club for the last, this is my 20th year here. 
And uh, I started out as the assistant superintendent. I was hired by David Sexton, who's um, who has played a big part in taking care of the golf course and kind of bringing it up to the speed. When he first got here, it was um, Tom Doak had been there, been here in September of 1980. Um, we have some of his um, um, slides, and uh, it's hard to recognize some of the holes. And uh, and uh, he really brought it around. And um, when I got here in 2000, um, they had just finished the fifth hole um, and restored that with Mike DeVries. Uh, as assistant superintendent, I was involved with the restoration efforts, working with David and Mike in the club. And then I think 2009 or 10, I took on the superintendent position. And a couple of years ago, I took on the director of grounds. So I'm in charge of um, feels like about everything um, when it comes to the golf course. And um, we have our own project crew. Uh, we have about three to four guys that are on that. And um, they we do all our projects, all our drainage and um, any kind of restorative work that we have planned. Um, any kind of improvements to the irrigation system or pumps um, come from that program. But then I'm also... And I'm um, oversee the golf course. I have a superintendent, uh, Kevin Hauschel, who's been here um, feels like five or six years already. Um, and uh, so he's a superintendent. Then we have a couple other employees, quite a few other employees. We, we're we're pretty heavily um, staffed. We have 27 employees, and we're very finely tuned to all the different things that we do here. And uh, one of the things that we've made a point of is making sure that we know what we're, what we're doing. Um, and it's not just the maintenance of everything, but we, we don't call ourselves greenkeepers here. We call ourselves meadow keepers in an effort to kind of set the tone and, you know, define our culture, um, not only for our maintenance, but for the club, you know, what we're trying to do is look after the meadow and, um, at the same time, you know, making sure that we're, fostering um, as much of what Alistair McKenzie intended with Robert Hunter here as possible. And it, that's an ongoing, it's definitely ongoing um, process. And, um, but it's been great. You know, I've seen this course really change in, in the 20 years that I've been here on so many different fronts. The, um, the greens have gotten better, the fairway top dressing programs that we have in place, the tree management programs we have in place. Um, and just overall member buy-in to the program. We have a lot more members that understand what we're trying to do now. And uh, um, they really have taken to the, to Alistair McKenzie and, you know, and the work that Mike's done for us and the work that we're doing. So it's, it's, we do quite a bit here. Um, we're looking after uh, native plants, trying to foster as much of that and remove non-native plants. Now, one of the things that McKenzie likes to talk about or that he spoke of was having color on the golf course. And uh, everything we try to do is um, making sure that we have multiple colors. Um, the monochromatic green color of some golf courses where it's just very uniform and stuff. It's um, a lot of the things that we try to do here is just try to have layers of color and um, and try to define the setting um, as natural as possible. A diverse canvas of color, right? Exactly. Beautiful. Yeah. 
What, what do you find are the unique challenges of preserving a Dr. Alistair McKenzie golf course? I mean, because there's not a ton of them in the United States. So I, I, I bet you feel quite a bit of a, a sense of burden almost to make sure that your work and your course reflects his genius on a daily basis. No? I feel obligated to make sure that that's being presented. Um, and, you know, we, a lot of what we try to do is what I try to do and set the tone for the course and uh, working with our green committee is using what McKenzie says. And we, we actually have, it's actually Robert Hunter said it, um, in, in our, um, in our club prospectus, it talks about St. Andrews, how the golf course is going to be like St. Andrews. And, you know, just, you throw that out there. It's, you know, we got, you got your creeks in play, you know, shared fairways and, um, you know, some other things they talked about was, you know, having different routings to play where you can go out and play four holes and come back in or seven holes or nine holes. Um, but just changing it all up. So it's very interesting that they were, that was 1927. And, you know, they're talking about, you know, obviously they didn't get as much play, um, or weren't, weren't seeing as much play then, but, um, we, we get about 35,000 on average a year. And we're open year round, trying to preserve what, it, trying to get us back to what we know we had, or can understand that we had based on pitchers. I think that's probably the hardest part. Is um, I'm still finding some pitchers of the golf course. Um, it's hard to find the pitchers that you really want to see from 1927. Our, our earliest aerial is only 1943, which kind of hurts that that part of it, but. Um, but you can still see a lot of the original bunkers are still there. Um, by 49, you can, you can see that changes are already being made. So um, just being, you know, one of the things we're trying to do right now is document how many trees we've had on the course over, over the life of the golf course. And uh, so we're using that's the aerials That's an interesting that. project, right? I mean, that's a oh, difficult yeah. one too. It can be. And we, our tree management program um, is, is, pretty well-founded in, you know, doing the research and understanding what each tree brings to the golf course. And again, we use, you know, some of what McKenzie talks about and just, you know, does the tree have playability issues, aesthetic issues? Um, does it damage turf? Are we having um, any other issues, um, shade patterns and whatnot? And um, so that program has been very solid. Um, it, it literally started after um, I think it was 2007 at Oakmont. Um, it, it got some people on our green committee thinking about what what we see on our golf course and uh, and what we don't see because of the trees. And when you look at it, I spend so much time. It, it's been great with this um, with this course shutdown and everything that we're dealing with with the coronavirus. Because um, I'm out on the golf course right now, uh, mowing greens and mowing some fairways and. I haven't mowed this much grass in a while. You we and, talked before we started. You said you just aerated, did you say six greens today on your own? Uh, uh, three. We we, yeah. we started yesterday um, fertilizing and, and top dressing. But, uh, you know, and you only have two people. Um, it's it's a slow process. But at the same time, I'm walking the air fire across the green, and I'm just looking down each fairway and just thinking about what I'm seeing. And then, you know, obviously checking down to make sure I'm still going straight. But, uh there's so much to take in. There's so many variables that we have out here, but one of the things that 
you know, a lot of people bring up with McKenzie is, you know, is the way he designed his golf course and, and um, the layering of bunkers and, you know, Mike Clayton's got that um, holes that aren't holes. And we've got um, what McKenzie does is he has uh, bunkers that aren't on the holes you're playing. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. But so when I'm sitting there going around looking at, I mean, back when I first got here, it was really great. The best time of the year for me was when all the, the leaves fell off the trees and I can see through the trees and see the bunkers on the other holes. And um, since we've removed so many trees now, I can see, I can really see all these openings and, and it just, it just keeps setting like um, it builds your excitement as you're going around the golf course and you can see, um, you can play down one, you can see, you get up to one green, just a short left of the green. You can see the bunkers on four tie in right behind the green on one. And, um, when you get up to the T on two, the bunker, the fairway bunker on two ties in with the, with the, uh, bunkers on four. So it, when you're teeing off, it, it looks like all these bunkers are in play, but you know, they're realistically so far out of the way, but the way they're laid out and the way McKenzie's put them and placed them and with Hunter's help, um, it makes you feel like you're, there's a lot more golf course that you're playing. And, um, you know, as somebody that comes out and plays it for the first time, they're not, they're not necessarily going to know it, but at the end of the day, your mind's eye is always going to tell you there's a bunker there. Yeah. I need to avoid it. Right. And it's just always going to play a part in that. You know, I, I wonder if you've thought about this, but as you're out there or just the two of you are out there, it's probably the course hasn't been, Maybe I, I don't, vacant's not a good word for it, but open. Then, perhaps prior to or just before it opened in 1927, has that crossed your mind? I mean, usually when you're doing aeration, you have the whole team out there. I mean, you, when you Correct. have two gentlemen out there all by yourselves, that's got to be a very unique kind of spiritual experience, I would imagine. It, it certainly has been, and I mean that's and that just i've been thinking that the last couple of days i mean i have a lot i've had a lot to think about you know since last monday um being up here but um yeah i mean it's it's almost like you know just seeing all the nature i mean i'm sure i've seen i see it already but now that i don't have to watch out for golfers and um i can look up and you know i'm seeing i mean i had all these a couple um red shoulder hawks um red tails and um a couple of Cooper Hawks or something. Um, they went by too fast, but it was just, there was so much activity on the golf course. Um, that wasn't golf. And that's, and it wasn't golf. And, and, and when we were, we were open for a couple of days right after this all happened and our members, I mean, I hope they realized how special it was because it was, there was absolutely the only cart that was going around was mine. And it was so quiet and so peaceful and, um, it, it's just, we forget how, um, cumbersome and every other kind of word we can place on golf carts. The world's way too fast, right? Yes. And, I, I mean, I can't believe it's, it's been just over a week and it feels like a month has passed. Um, it's been so slow just, but at the same time, I'm, you know, I've been thinking about this podcast since we, we talked last and, um, but just, just being out here and, you know, just taking in the golf course and just really studying it. Um, I haven't had this much time to be on the golf course. 
I've been spending more time in the office. But um, it's a special place, and you know, and it just keeps getting better. I'm curious. Do you, when you're on the course, how do you view it? I mean, it's uh, it's Alistair McKenzie's work. I often relate the great courses to masterpieces of living art. Do you like? Do you feel that when you're on the course? I certainly do. Um, I, I, I mean, I view it completely different than our members right off the bat because when I look at the routing map, my routing, uh, I I have to flip it over to to show the members what I'm talking about because their perspective is from the first tee. My perspective is from our maintenance facility, which is um, caddy corner to the opposite side of the property. So I'm already seeing and thinking about the golf course differently. But, um, you know, to get to your point, um, it's the, the canvas is constantly moving here. And, you know, like I, like I mentioned, I'm envisioning, you know, some trees coming out or, you know, we're, we're, we're actually removing some cart path. We took cart path out on 18 and that hole got better. And, when I sit there and I'm always, I'm always, you know, I got to take a picture of this. This is, this view is really good. The sun's hitting it just right or whatever. And it's like, I really want to take this picture, but man, the cart path and this irrigation controller and a golf cart's in the way. Right. Yeah. I've been there before, right? When the perfect picture presents itself, but there's just something that is manufactured in the way, right? Exactly. And, and every, I mean, I just spent, I, I'm always trying to go out and, I make a point to go to Cypress Point and see Mark, Jeff Marco, excuse me. Um, I try to get out there and see that at least once a year. I've done that pretty good the last three years. And and just to get away, but to go also also go and see another McKenzie course and just see how it feels there. You know, when, when I go and play another course, I judge that course, how good it is by the um, by how many holes I get in before I start thinking about Metal Club. And then, you know, I just did a trip. I went and saw Yeaman's Hall. I wanted to see Yeaman's Hall to see what, what Rainer was doing in 1924, 25, right before he would have gone to Cyprus. So, and it's, and then I, on that same trip, I went to Ohupi because I needed to see how they were, you know, they have tiff tough Bermuda grass. I wanted to see what effect that might have and how it would look at Metal Club based on what they have, it's, how they have it set up there. So I'm always looking and drawing, not only for my course, or the course here at Meadow Club, but I'm also, I want to get out and see some other courses. Or I mean, most of the time I'm stuck on Twitter to do that. But when I do get out, I I drove probably five times the amount of time that I actually walked those courses. Yeah, so, just to see them. Let, let me ask yeah. you this. So if, we, if you're bringing somebody to a McKinsey course and, and you really want them to really open their eyes to the genius of Dr. Alistair McKinsey what would you tell them to look out for when they're playing golf other than just looking at the tee box, looking at the green and hazards? How would you, how would you teach them that? I don't know if you want to call it sweep the ground, but how do you, how do you open their eyes to the artistry? That's pretty, the, the, probably the, the thing I show or try to talk to, um, whoever I'm talking to about is, um, the intimacy of the golf course. And with that comes so many things and it's intimate for, I mean, it's intimate for a lot of different reasons. And one of which is, you know, he's playing off if, you know, Cypress point, you have 
all the holes right there. Um, when you get to the third green, the uh, sixth green, the ninth green, and then you have all the tees that splinter off from there. And it's amazing because, you know, back in the day, everybody's just walking. And I mean, most of, most of the people there are walking today even, but uh, it's very intimate. But then at the same time, you have to think, he, he was thinking about a lot of other things too. In, you know, he has economy of construction, or excuse me, economy of design. And how do I design something that will be easy to construct and easy to maintain? Because you got to you got to remind yourself that this is 1920s, you know, we'll say 1927 um, for Cypress Point as an example. And you know, they don't have a lot of trucks or they don't have a lot of trucks or golf carts. I mean, they're going to put the walk mower on some wheels and walk it over. So if they can hit four greens in one small area. It, it it cuts down on the amount of travel time that they have. But then again, you know, they're, you just, and, but he's using the landform. So there's, you know, that's kind of a, a built up hill. At Metal Club, he's got two fairly, you know, two good sized ridges that cut across the property. He's built four greens into one one little ridge. And on the other side of the golf course, there's there's four greens there. And, and it's just it's just really amazing in you know valley clubs the same way i mean you can just keep pointing at stuff instead of you know we as we both know with modern you know a lot of modern courses with carts and stuff it's you know a golf course can be spread out over miles and um it, there's just the um the intimacy and you know for me it's you know what we've always when i first got here we've always had wide fairways you know that's one of his things is not to look for 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 golf balls and all that stuff. But it, it's that, that idea is lost on so many other golf courses. And, um, you know, we have large greens, we have large fairways, wide fairways. We also have large aprons, our aprons. We just, I just started doing this about four years ago. We went and almost doubled the size of them out front of the green so that, for the higher handicappers that were trying to run their ball up on the green, it's, it's a hell of a lot easier to do that now. And uh, the grass is cut a lot shorter and we we're managing it a little firmer now. And, uh, you know, McKenzie's always, you know, he talks about the duality of a golf course one so that the average player can enjoy it and, and the expert enjoy it and still be challenged. And the same for the expert, there's, you know, multiple lines of play and all that stuff. And um, everything we try to do, that's, you know, one of the challenges is, you know, we want to foster that as much as possible. We go to our conferences and are we talking, read magazines, it's always about pace to play and, you know, what are all these things that we can do? And all we got to do is kind of do what they were doing back in the 20s. They laid the groundwork, right? It wasn't so much about, they weren't challenging so much that first tee shot. It was, you know, they didn't put a bunch of punkers out there. You just had to put the ball in the right spot so that you had the angle to play in. We're, we're both hickory players, so we understand that probably a little more than others. But you have to put your ball in the right spot if you're going to go at a green over some bunkers or a green that falls away. You got to go to a certain spot, and if you don't, then you might as well have landed in a bunker. I mean, you you got a tough shot to play, or a blind one, right? Yeah, I mean that's you know my favorite. You know, if I were to point somebody to a, a golf hole, it would probably be the fourth at Pasatiempo. Um, 
the they've you know they have the two bunkers short right on the fairway, and then there's the bunker, probably another fifty yards, maybe not that far up on the left side, and the the fairway kind of tucks on those right side bunkers, and then the whole level opens up, so you have this huge landing area to place your ball over there. But you want to go towards the right or down the right right side of the fairway so that you can see the green, because as soon as you go further left, the bunkers it blind makes it makes for a blind shot. And I'll, when I played that hole, I was it, I I was you know I got hit upside the head by how simple the architecture was and how you know I didn't first time playing it I had no idea what I was expecting I've studied it and everything but until you're on the ground you don't you don't know what you're seeing and uh, just little things like that and you know here you have this huge bailout and um, you can take it but then you you have a blind tee shot or a blind second shot into the green. That's fascinating. Let, let me let me get back to Metal Club here. So I, you mm-hmm. alluded to this. Um, I understand that you lost many of your original McKinsey design elements over the years, and then we, as you alluded to, you had um, Tom Doak, and then Devries Designs uh, was then hired in 1999 to help restore it to its former glory. Can you speak mm-hmm. to what that process looked like over those last 20 years? You, I guess you were there for a good portion of those years. Yeah. So just to clarify, yeah, Doak just Doak was doing his confidential guide when he came through. Gotcha. So he just took I, when I first got here, I was going through the old pictures and I found an envelope and it had it just said Doak in 1980 on there, and um, but um, we before that, you know, we had two other. Oh, I'm going to go back even further because I'm a, we're talking about golf course architecture. So um, originally the property was was looked at um i've done all this research and it was mckenzie 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 and then i start digging deeper and i find out that vernon mccann was up here a whole year before alistair mckenzie was and in all my golf research i never saw that once in the newspapers magazines i never saw a mention of it i found it in some letters to william kent who was one of our founding members to some golf writers he was asking them who we should talk to and in William Kent's oral history, there was also a mention of Herbert Fowler. And I'm like, really? Wow. Because, yeah. you know, I've done a lot of research on Herbert Fowler and um, in California specifically. And I know that he left like 22 or 23. So he never came back, maybe even 21. But he was here from 20 to at least 22. And I'm like, that really puts the idea in Kent's head even earlier than and I think any of us understood. And a um, couple, boy, a couple months ago, maybe even longer now, um, I actually found a, a, a newspaper article um, where Fowler talks about being up on up on the property at Metal, at the proposed golf site in 1921, and it just blew my mind. And um, 21. to have, yeah, wow. to have Fowler up here because that we had a huge golf boom in California in the early twenties and they were looking to build some golf and they were actually in 22, they had, um, Willie Watson. And again, I, I had never heard of this golf course, never seen it. And I've looked at every golf magazine and I've gone to the Chronicle from 1920 to 27, I think is where I left off August and never saw this mention of, uh, Willie Watson to design a golf course in Marin County. And um, this guy met at doing research, 
we started talking. I always, I always ask people what they're researching, and he's like, I research maps. And I'm like, okay, this is what I do. And a couple of weeks later, he sent me uh, images of a Willie Watson routing map from 1922 of a golf course that was never built. And um, so this is amazing. And, you know, and then, you know, as we progress, McKinsey Hunter designed and built the course. 49, Harold Sampson, um, noted golf, uh, noted golfer in Northern California, made a bunch of changes. They weren't very good. And um, those persisted for quite a, I mean, up until I was here, um, some bunkers, a bunker on 18 green, a bunker to the left of nine. That were and added. Then, uh, they were added um, rather poorly. Um, and and then William, uh, not William, um, Robert Muir Graves. He was up here in the 60s, and he would later get work in the 80s, in the early 80s. And um, that was the work that David did. The first time he did, he renovated the bunkers. He did it with uh, uh, Robert Muir Graves, and then he ended up doing it again when um, when the club hired Mike DeVries. And in 1999, they started on the fifth hole, and that was that's a it's a copy of the um, the the high in hole at St Andrews and um, or the Eden hole as everybody else wants to call it um, and uh, that was the most documented hole that we had so it was the first hole we the, that David and the crew went after and you know from it was amazing I wasn't here for that first hole but. The process of restoring the golf course, our crew, you know, with new employees and, and new help throughout the year, we throughout the five years, um, we just kept getting the process better. So every the, the next year we did um, um, 12, 17 and one. And and then each year we just add and that was mostly um, most of the work was, you know, greens and bunkers and then we did uh, some work on some other aspects of the holes, but, uh, and some tree removal, but the large part was to enlarge the greens back out to the original size. And that was what was really lost was, you know, our 17th green, which is, is a punch bowl. And it has two punch bowls, a punch bowl in the back and a punch, kind of a little punch bowl in the front and then down front. And then there's an upper level and it's in the spirit of St. Andrews. Um, the, when they talk, when he talks about metal club, and uh, that green was most of the greens. So let's see. The depression was pretty tough, and we didn't. We had more than enough labor because you know there was everybody was here. We just didn't have a lot of money, and um, so we didn't lose a lot of the course. But after you know, once World War II came, we lost all the labor. And um, in 43, there was a drought, and then they shrunk all the greens down to these little pads and all the, basically all the flat portions of the greens. And, like, our um, our 17th green doubled in size when we restored it. Um, that's how, how far gone they had gotten. I mean, it makes sense, I suppose, right? I mean, if you're not vigilant, yeah. it's easy to lose the little things, and those little things over time become little, 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 and all of a sudden it's quite large well, well to put a perspective on it i mean the same thing's kind of going to happen now if we're going to save a golf course to make sure it lasts maybe we do have to make the green smaller and have a smaller crew so i mean we may be seeing not i mean everybody talks about the depression but everything i've seen it really wasn't the depression that really um knocked everybody's um 
the golf course is back. It was more World War II when everybody left, uh, not everybody left. Um, like Marion, they had women working on the golf course back in, in, you know, I think that was, might've been even the first world war. Um, that was the first world war. Um, so, you know, everybody, you know, accommodated for things, you know, you know, so obviously some of those courses closed, but, uh, you know, a lot of changes probably happened more towards, you know, you know, the war and after the war, everything really hit the fan after the war, in my opinion, but. Um, everything became more modernized and streamlined and um, all that crazy stuff. That's what changed everything. But, you know, we've, so I'm kind of getting away from the question. <laughs> oh, that's right. But, um, um, you know, so with, with DeVries, he would come in every, every year. And, you know, the first year we did five. And then while he was here doing five, he would, we would ramp up and he would do, we would go over with him and look at all the other holes that we we're going to do the following year to get ready. And then, um, we would, cause we were adding sod. We, uh, we didn't buy sod. So whenever we aerified, cause our greens, we have really good polar greens that can happen. And, uh, <laughs> and we would pull the plugs off the green, uh, off a certain green. We had, we had some issues with pearl wort way back then. And, um, we would pull the sod off and put it off on plastic and, or not plastic, excuse me, I'm going too fast. We would pull the plugs off, put them in our nursery, and then seed some bent into it. And by the time we were ready to do our restoration, after we had pulled the sod off the green and the bunkers, we pulled the sod off the bunkers and put it on plastic. And then put put our put our nursery sod on the greens, so we had it matched up to the greens, the 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 sod on the greens. And um, when in 2001 we hosted the McKinsey Society, which is you know 16. Um, clubs from all over the world um, and we we uh, just start in the rain it's perfect <laughs> um, we um, we hosted the event and we went out and we showed everybody and we're, we're explaining to them that these are the three holes that we did this year and um, everybody was not I can't say everybody but quite a few people were like wow you guys did this work this year it looks like it's always been here that's cool. and, um, a nice compliment, we just, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've refined our process. I mean, I, I almost want to go back and do some more restoration. <laughs> it was so much fun to to peel stuff away, and you know, Mike would get in there with with uh, with our operator, and um, and and well, Mike was an operator too. He was on the dozer, shaping out bunkers and um, getting the final grade on some of the greens, and uh, and uh, but yeah, it was just so much fun to see where the soil types changed, and then we would find our old quick coupler. No, it, it was really, really cool. I mean, just to be a part of. I mean, I always thought I always knew I was going to be a part of a restoration. Yeah, I always figured it was going to be a Donald Ross course or sure, sharing hashes sure. because yeah. there's Something so many that's more prolific. You bet, are all yeah. over the place. And you know, here I am. I I interviewed at Spyglass to try to get an assistance job at Spyglass, and I didn't get it. And, uh, cause it, long story, but, um, I'm, you know, I ended up pretty good. I thank goodness. Right. Nothing against spy I, glass, but yeah, yeah. Thank goodness. No, no, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So the superintendent I interviewed with, um, uh, Frank Zamazal, he used to be the assistant at Meadow club and David was looking for somebody and Frank's like, I got your guy. And, uh, you know, I, uh, been very thankful to Frank from, from, from that moment on. You're part of a small group of historians who are vigilantly 
cataloging the life and times of Dr. Alistair McKenzie. For those listening, what is the McKenzie chronology? Yeah, so the McKenzie chronology is it's um, it's it's almost like a love affair, um, and it was started by Nick Leaf, a member at All Woodley, and Bob Beck, a member at Pasa Tiempo. So kind of the beginning and. Not necessarily the complete. Well, it was the end. He died there. <laughs> and uh, but um, two amazing gentlemen. Um, it, they both really dug in at their own golf courses and went through the minutes. And you know, if you looked at some of the earlier versions of the chronology, it was all their work. And it was it was they started it. They what they were trying to do was to figure out where McKenzie was, because so many people and. It still happens today, and we'll talk about it. Is um, Mackenzie worked at my course, and it's like um, you're in El Paso. I don't think he was ever there, but we had no way to prove it, right? So they started it out, and you know Bob Beck, he's one of the smartest and um, most educated on golf history for a golf historian. He, I don't think he was ever the historian there at Pasa Tiempo, but he was he knew more than just about everybody combined about the history of Pasa Tampo and the history of Marion Hollins. He just recently, he was trying to get Marion Hollins into the, to the world golf hall of fame. Right. And, uh, so. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I mean, the more you learn about her, it's just amazing. And I, I'm going to do I, a podcast on her this year. I mean, her story awesome. is amazing. Amazing. Well, you need to talk to Bob. Yeah. <laughs> so, I plan on it. Trust me. He's yeah. on my short list to do Actually, yeah. I believe the USGA recommended him. Yeah. As they should. And, um, um, so these two guys started it, and then you know over the years, I don't know, I just kept asking them questions. I'd get on the phone with Bob, and we'd be on the phone for. I'd ask him all these questions. We'd be on the phone for hours, and um, at some point, I just started. I saw what they were doing, and I just started sharing stuff with them. And so I got kind of pulled into the um, group, and you know over the years we've added quite a few people. Um, yeah, who do you can you? I mean, off the top of your head, do you know who all the researchers are that are involved yeah. in the chronology? So, um, Neil Crafter, who you know, for a while, Bob Beck was the um, the editor, so to speak, or the the the, the gatekeeper of it. And then um, he kindly handed it to me, and then I kind of got overrun with work and you know, um, a young family, <laughs> so. Um, I handed it off to Neil Crafter, who's an um, uh, uh, architect in uh, Australia, and um, he's he's been running with it ever since. And uh, he knows a hell of a lot about McKinsey, and he's done some really deep digging in it into this past. So it's great to have um, to be a part of that team with you know those with the four guys I've already mentioned, and there's a couple guys I can't I don't have it sitting right in front of me. Um, oh, that's okay. I think one of the coolest things about it is the fact that it's absolutely free for people to look at. Correct. I mean, yeah. it's. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong. You correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's www.alistermckenzie.co.uk. Is that correct? Sounds. It's. It's on the um, the McKenzie Society uh, UK and Irish Societies page. Yeah, it is one of the most amazing things I've ever looked at. To be quite frank, yeah. it is beyond thorough <laughs> it is uh, yeah. i would i would say it's like anal retentively thorough i've gotten is that a that, fair yes. way to go by that 
Oh, certainly, I've gotten that a couple of times. People are like, why do you do this? Yeah, maybe answer that question. Why? Why in your mind is it important? Because we have an opportunity to learn about somebody that brings so much to the plate. Even today, I mean, the more you get to know somebody, the more you want to learn. I mean, when they have so many layers and aspects about their life, it's um, he just lived such a rich life and and had so much impact, not only in the game of golf, but, you know, with his stuff during his military time and being a doctor and all that other stuff. I mean, all the other stuff. He, it, I mean, he was just so well-rounded. And um, it's, it's just interesting. You know, maybe we don't need to know that he had beef Wellington at um, Cypress Point on such and such date. But at the end of the day, we found that it, we found that information and we put it in there because. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I mean, <laughs> this is not, not a great way to look at this, but uh, part of uh, archaeology and the study of dinosaurs is actually looking at what they <laughs> ate through their feces. We're not going oh, that yeah. far, to be fair. No, 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 no. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. even dream of that. But <laughs> that's where we draw um, the line, Sean. That's where yeah, we draw the yeah. line. But at the end of the day, it's it's trying to understand somebody. And you know, I've been trying to do this for three years. I, I have a there's a series of letters that he wrote to William Worcester, who designed his home at Pasa Tiempo, that's still there. And there, it's a stack of letters, and I, I saw them, and I looked at one page, and it's almost to a T. They're almost all um, hotel stationary so they all have the the name of the hotel he's hopefully dated them so i have all this information that i haven't i can't wait to look at but i just with my family um my daughters and and my work it's hard for me just to get over across the bay and make an appointment that i can make i've every december i try to do this and it's been like six years (laughs) but the first letter i read it was it said dear mr worcester or whatever they Whatever, however their their introductions were, like you know, we got your letter, and Alistair really likes to read in the living room at night with the dim light. He doesn't like it being bright. So here, you know, we're just learning, you know, this idiosyncrasies of somebody, and and it just at the end of the day, it just it adds up, and it just it's just and I find I find history to be interesting, and just learning how people lived and went about things and you know, how far they can get in one day driving or taking a train is very interesting to me. And so different than today, right? When we think about how fast we can get things. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, part of this whole coronavirus thing, it's like the pace of everything slowed down. And I I honestly, I like this feeling and I want to enjoy what I do and, and take that time and, and, you know, just trying to think back at, simpler times where they didn't have have to check their phone to see if Royal Melbourne had sent them an email about, you know, when are you going to come back out? <laughs> right. Yeah. So you know, imagine all the emails he would have gotten. Oh my God. He, would have been, he wouldn't have been able to do his job. Um, yeah. What, what out of, out of all this research, are there any takeaways that you have uh, that kind of unmask, you know, who Alistair McKenzie was like, what do you take away from that? Um, he, he must've loved what he was doing. Cause I mean, just to be engaged and to, I mean, he traveled the world to design golf courses. You know, there, there's just like, 
maybe two other guys. I mean, we, you know, Fowler definitely got around and, um, Colt, Colt, you know, well, Allison too. Willie Park would be a good one. And Willie Park, but I mean, but did he move to, he moved to the States, right? Or did yeah, he go back? He did I move don't know. to the States. I think he was in Canada yeah. for a while, but yeah, he wasn't. Yeah. All but these, the, the other guys, they're, they're kind of bouncing back and forth. And, and this is the, you know, we're talking the twenties here. Yeah. And, uh, it's just crazy that, that they were able to get around and, you know, to, you know, the whole story for him, him getting to, um, Argentina that was brought about by, um, I think it was, I think I had it down to Finlay Douglas, who was the president of the oh, USGA. Really? Interesting. He, he had been contacted. Douglas had been contacted. Um, like who, who would you recommend to come down and do some work for us at the jockey club or whatever club it was at the time? And he gave him McKenzie's name. We're talking, this is 28, 29. There's a lot of things that happened in 28 and 29 that kind of changes McKenzie's um, perspective or, I don't know, it changes the way he sees things and, you know, opportunities arise. But um, one of the coolest things, he, he did this, um, it was a society of British golfers that had all fought in World War One, And then, and this is in 28, um, they came and they played with the Canadian group and the Americans. And they went and um, they traveled. They were in New York and played uh, Blindbrook and went to a Yankees game against the Athletics. I don't know which where they would have been playing from there in 28. But then they go on a train and they go north and they go all the way across. To, he goes all the way north and across to Vancouver. That's when he goes to Jasper and writes his review on Jasper. And But then... In 2029, 20, 2829, with um, the U.S. Amateur at Pebble Beach, while he was there, while the USJ was there, they've always been wanting to have more events on the West Coast. And it's pretty cool that McKenzie was brought in to look at San Francisco Golf Club as a potential USGA Oh, I didn't host. know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I knew that he had given a report. And there was a lot of speculation as to what, when, why, and where, and how that all happened. And I've got some of the answer in, in that it was the USGA trying to figure out, um, is this a golf course that can host an event? And, you know, most certainly it is. It can still host one if they wanted to right now, I think. <laughs> be nice. But, um, yeah, so how cool would it be oh, to see amazing. that? Yeah, I mean, we got the report amazing. on Jasper where he's talking about what you know, what was it Thompson, and then here because you don't get you don't see that very often. You don't see a lot of critique where another architect is asked to talk, or maybe they were, but it's not in writing. Yeah, so it wasn't documented, right? Yeah, and what's interesting is that's twenty nine, and by the next year, uh, Billy Bell was in there and did a whole bunch of work mm-hmm. under the aus- auspices of of uh, Tillinghast. Um, his plans, but that's, a, that's another podcast. That's <laughs> crazy. Let's go into this. So the military and preparation for war has given birth to inventions that have changed the world. Uh, examples of this are the internet, GPS, microwave ovens, computers, and the genius of Alistair McKenzie. In a lecture on camouflage, McKenzie credits the Boers of South Africa for his work in camouflage, which led to golf design philosophies and I will quote the le- a lecture from uh, McKinsey. Uh, the quote is, The brilliant successes of the Boers were due to the great extent to their making the best use of natural cover 
and the construction of artificial cover indistinguishable from nature. Now, McKinsey studied the Boer techniques of using nature to the ben- their benefit in war, and he became a little bit obsessed. How did that change his path within the military? Yeah, so this this part of McKinsey has really fascinated me, and um, the Boer War, and I mean, he wrote quite a bit of stuff leading, you know, it's interesting how much was written and didn't and passed through censors in 1914 through yeah, I'm sure. the war. But there's quite a bit of correspondence between um, McKenzie. Uh, McKenzie wrote some, you know, he wrote a whole, um, his lectures. Um, it doesn't say his name on the lecture. It just says, um, I can't remember what it says on the front, but it, it doesn't give his name. It, it kind of says uh, landscape architect or something. And um, what he did and what he was able to do, you know, he wrote these articles and people were um, people in the military that said they were in the military because it's kind of like a, a, a discussion group back then is the letter section in the newspapers. Um, I don't know if you've come across the old stuff where Tom Simpson's arguing with Red Dot or somebody about architecture. Yeah, and beautiful debates some, in the newspapers, yeah, right? And, yeah. Yeah, McKenzie was having – to you know, he wrote this article about entrenchments and or gave a lecture and you know he was getting poo pooed a little bit by some people and um, one of the guys that that argued with him they went out and McKenzie took him out to one of the places that he was having having these these trenches placed and he's like can you show me where the soldier is and and they were 200 yards away and he couldn't he could not see anybody until he was within I think I think it said like 50 yards. So, and what he, he was just, what he was trying to do is kind of what you talked about with um, using a natural cover, and you know he was trying to tying it into the horizon in some places, but then he was also building up um, some bulk work, and it, it's just really fascinating in that he was looking at things from a different perspective, and and he definitely you know they started the whole um, you know camouflage is develop the the word camouflage comes out about this you know right around the time that they're in the war in france of course it's a french word and um i mean camouflage has been around forever and in nature and and you know what he's trying to do is copy nature try to get rid of those the rigid lines i mean it's it's amazing the breadth of of his um correspondence and and in lecturing and he wrote one um uh, an argument for camouflage and it was him writing about the use of camouflage against in cameras because the military, this was, I would say it's a second war that, you know, that they used, um, they weren't, I don't think they were taking pictures, but they're up in, you know, civil war, they're up in the balloons fl- flying over bulls right. run yeah. and, and stuff like that. Um, and probably in, somewhere in France too, after that. But, um, you know, this is the first time, first war that they were flying airplanes over a field, over a battlefield, or um, over. Yeah, I guess it would still be a battlefield, um, and you know, taking all these photographs, and it's just amazing um, all the photos and images, and you know, Solomon J. Solomon, who was running the, um, he, kind of running the school of camouflage. Basically, he was saying the Germans are hiding under. Um, 
tarps and uh, like huge tarps and coloring, painting them and all that. And Mackenzie um, ridiculed them here and there, but uh, still trying to understand the perspective on what position he held. You know, he says he, he led the school. So Solomon was the guy that was in charge. It looks like from a, from a, if we're doing the research, it, that's what it says. Um, there's a guy, Bernhard or Bernard, who is, I can't think of his first name, but he was, these stories all wind together with other stories. So this is the same guy that drew the images of the Lusitania sinking. Um, he was on the boat or on a boat that picked them up. I can't remember, but he drew the images that were put in the newspapers. Wow. And, and, Weird uh, connection um, there, but he also, yeah, he served in the, the camouflage school. And he would later go on and design um, um, sets for plays in in really? London. How and, interesting um, is that? Yeah. And he wrote a book. And I can't find a copy. Um, there's a copy in Vermont and some other place, I think, in Australia. I, gotta, I just saw that the other day. I want to see if Neil was anywhere near it. But um, the book is called Cock Sparrow. And it's about his time, his life. And there's a whole section of it where he devotes to camouflage in his time in the camouflage school. And that's I'm, I'm hoping that his is um, truthful and, you know, talking about what happened in the school or I mean, it, it's from a first person perspective, not from the military perspective. So right. I just I need to track down the book. I don't I don't have any reason yet to go to Vermont, but that's that, well, that is the reason. That's the yeah, reason. Now you do. How did Dr. Alistair McKenzie use a defensive tactic of war to design golf courses? Like, how did he make that? How do we make that connection? He wrote two articles right before he died. One of them was published the month he died. Um, so he wrote two articles. Um, oh, man. Camouflage or in the def- one's on defense and one's on offense in the use of camouflage. And in both articles, he talks about designing of golf courses in the in the same article and and um it's more towards the bunkers but but also at the same point he's you know if you're defending yourself how long do you want to take to build a bunker or not a bunker excuse me a trench or entrenchments you got to get that shit built as quickly as possible because you're on the defense and and here you have you know and we just talked about it already, you know, the economy of design, construction, and maintenance. So, and, you know, Bayside's a perfect example. I mean, he's, he's, he's taken what he did building, you know, coming up with the ideas to design um, trenches and, and, and all that other stuff that goes involved, goes in there. He, you know, Bayside's probably the, a perfect example of, of the epitome uh, of bringing that all together. And he built that course, because the, the quicker you build a golf course, the less time it, that you have to build it. So you have sure. it costs less, and then you can open it up quicker. Yeah. And Bayside, everyone at home, is Dr. Alistair McKenzie's course in New York. Unfortunately, it does no longer exist. And there's hardly any pictures of it. Yeah. A couple <laughs> aerials. I have an aerial of it. That's the yeah. best I have. Yeah. And But he took that experience in the military of, you know, you're digging up that soil. You, you got to know where to put it. Where are you going to put that soil? The same thing happens if you're going to build a bunker. Where are you going to put that soil? Or 
if you need to make a cut into a hillside, where do you put that soil? You've got to build something. How do you build it? Where do you put that stuff? So when you – I'm fascinated. You know, everybody talks about the dark ages of golf in America. You know, the the really early 1900 stuff where Victorian, you have – yeah. Yeah, the Victorian – everything that looks like equestrian jumps and stuff. And, it does. But when when you look at what happened – I mean, the same thing happened in England when, when yeah. they went when they went inland, and the perfect example is Royal Mid Surrey, and Mackenzie was you know this is I think this is like eleven, twelve, thirteen. I'm, I'm a little rusty on Royal Mid Surrey, but it come it makes kind of helps the story along in that if you haven't seen early pictures of Royal Mid Surrey from the turn of the century, meaning nineteen hundred, it would blow your mind to know that that was actually built and, but it also helps to give pause to understand the response that Peter Lees and J.H. Taylor made when they, when they did the alpinization and bumps and hollows or whatever it was called. And it was a reaction to that Victorian crazy stuff where, you know, they were, you know, they were trying to build, they couldn't necessarily, I don't know what happened, <laughs> but they definitely couldn't build the link style uh, courses. And they ended up building these, I mean, I'll, I'll have to, I'll share, share with, with everybody the, the one picture I have. It's, it's, it's amazing. And then you have, you know, and at the same time you got McKenzie, he's up in, you know, up by, uh, in Yorkshire, he's playing around trying to naturalize his bunkers and build them into, um, into features that look, you know, real instead of, um, and it, it obviously took quite a while for that to happen. It didn't just happen overnight. Colt was doing the same thing. And, um, Allison, you know, Thompson or Thompson Simpson, <laughs> Tom Simpson and, you know, Fowler and you know, everybody was, so you have, everything's trendy in golf. Do you think McKinsey's earliest designs in England reflected this art of camouflage, or do you feel like he kind of evolved into his craft? He was evolving. Um, you know, the, a lot of people talk about the California bunker, and they kind of relate. I mean, but that's a misnomer to to relate it just to him because you know, if you look at Castlewood in '25 with Billy Bell and and um, his work there. Um, and Thomas, um, it, you would have thought McKenzie. I'm sitting there looking at the pictures. I'm like, wow, I didn't, I didn't. I'm sitting there looking at what course is this? This is early for McKenzie. He wouldn't have been here. Yeah, <laughs> and it was their work. I mean, same goes for Riviera, Riviera, obviously. And um, so it's really interesting. But when you go and you look at some of uh, um, Neil and some other folks back there, you know, we're finding pictures. I think it was London Flying Club of a really. You can just see if you close your eyes and open them again, you could go, okay, I can see that in at, in California somewhere. But um, and that's the funny thing is here at Medical Club, our bunkers look unlike almost all the bunkers that he built in California. Uh, we have like these scalloped little tinier bunkers, and you know, Pasta Tempo has all these fingers and a, a little different makeup to their bunkers, and Cypress the same. And uh, it's just you know the same thing. You know, I think. Um, uh, Brad mentioned, you know, you know, Ross didn't 
design all the same bunkers at every golf course. I mean, sure. you can't say there's a Ross bunker. Yeah, and I think that's what happens, though, right? Don't I mean, I hear people, you know, who talk to me about McKinsey's work over in England uh, and elsewhere, uh, mm-hmm. maybe not uh, Australia, but they say that the bunkers in maybe California and Australia just feel so different than his work over in uh, specifically Europe, but let's say England. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Australia, you know, that's a, everything evolves differently, especially. I mean, I mean, we're talking Australia. Of course, um, yeah. They have platypuses, right? And uh, is it the platypus? I'm make, I got to make sure I get this right. I'm going to get a lot of shit if I get it wrong. But uh, you know, everything evolves. And when you know, Mackenzie comes over to Australia and he he builds up what they've already built. And you know, I think he was talking about. Um, the courses were too long and too narrow, and and you know the bunkers were too far away from the greens, and he wanted them closer. So, you know, he changed that, and boy, are they up close to the greens now? <laughs> no, they're so, unbelievable. I mean, they, I mean, those are staggering bunkers. I love them. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's the one thing I haven't. I mean, there's quite a few golf courses that I haven't seen or places I haven't seen in Australia. Is it just keeps every time I see more pictures of it, it just I got to get there. I know. Um, yeah. But it's, but, you know, it evolved into what it is today, but it's, it still has a lot of, you know, McKenzie laid an egg there and it, it's prospered pretty, pretty well on its own. And um, it, we all lose our way. I mean, every, not every place can, can stay the way it was originally designed. We know that almost all too well. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I, I don't know. The whole thing about it is, is just fascinating to me because I think mm-hmm. each piece of art is a little bit different. And I think the yeah. topography and where it's located. It's topography. Where, it's yeah. also soil types. Yeah, they have different the canvas soil types. changes. So does the art. That's kind yeah. of my thought process. There. And, you know, we, we sit there and we look at, I think, I can't remember. I want to say it was Neil that brought it up. But when you look at our bunkers and then you look up at the trees and it kind of looks like the under part of the tree is like, the bunker itself, the way our edges are, but um, it's it's interesting. Um, you know everything, and you know it depends on the crew and you know who he had there working or whatnot. So there's there's a lot of variables at play for sure. You have just listened to part one of the history of Dr. Alistair McKenzie with our special guest Sean Tully the director of grounds at the Meadow Club. On a personal note, we are living through a very tough time in the history of our world with the outbreak of COVID-19. I would personally like to wish you all and your families the best of health. For those of you who feel like you are alone and need someone to converse with, please do not hesitate to email me at the Society of Golf Historians at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at at shistorians, or join our private Facebook page, the Society of Golf Historians. We are all in this together. You are not alone. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>